Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 16. Hear the reading of God's word. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in, at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. There's a verse missing here at the end, but basically saying that it equips us to do the works that God uh, has called us to do. You know, uh, the last two weeks you had guest speakers, and so we, uh, we depart from the series that we uh, have been going through, but for the last couple of weeks, we, we've been going through a series on the five solas of the Reformation. We're going to return to that today. And today we're going to look at uh, sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. And just to kind of give you a recap of why we're doing this and the reason we're going through a series like this, uh, this year marks the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things that I thought would be nice to do is look at the five solas of the Reformation in order to remember some of the basic teachings that came out of that period and some of the things that shape our particular theo theological beliefs as Good News Church. And up until now, what we've covered is are things like faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone. And although it's true that some of these things uh, were controversial at the time, I think what really got, began to get the Catholic Church upset uh, and get Martin Luther in trouble uh, is this idea of sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Why? Well, by claiming that scripture alone is the final and highest authority for faith and life, uh, it's also saying this, that the papacy and the church as a human institution does not have ultimate and final authority on matters of faith and life. And at the time, that was very controversial to say. You know, at the time, it was commonly understood that it was both scripture and the tradition of the church that were inspired by God and therefore were perfectly flawless as a source of divine revelation. Uh, but Luther, although he didn't uh, necessarily formulate this doctrine of scripture alone, you start to see the seeds of this idea in some of his writings, and you see him begin to affirm uh, some of that when he begins to write against papal authority and begins to disagree with some of the teachings of the Catholic Church. And usually when you challenge somebody's authority, and usually when you threaten to take away somebody's authority, that's ultimately when you get in trouble, right? Some of you know that in a working environment, you have to be very careful that you go through the proper channels, uh, you, can't, you can't supersede your immediate boss or your immediate supervisor because once you go above your immediate boss or supervisor, what it ends up doing is it ends up uh, diminishing that particular person's authority and they might easily take it as a slight or as an insult. And so when Luther said scripture was his final authority, essentially what he is also saying is he is diminishing the ultimate and the final authority of the papacy. And when he spoke against the authority of the papacy, that's when he begins to be accused as a heretic. And the church would demand Luther to recant some of the things that he taught in his writings, some of the things that he said against the papacy. 
And Luther, as he, you know, he's a, he was a, a, a true Catholic, so he, he thought about it seriously, and uh, he thought about it with uh, a sense of, you know, I better take this seriously because if I'm wrong, my soul, my very soul is at stake. But after thinking about it, he ultimately decided not to can't, recant. And rather, he would respond with this very bold statement. Uh, he says this, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either the, in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. My God, help me. Amen. That's, that's pretty bold if uh, you, you understand the context at the time. And soon after, he would be branded as a heretic. He would be excommunic excommunicated from the Catholic Church. And some of us, we may not understand the exact tension or the drama that is taking place in this moment, but you think about this single individual is risking his very soul to stand up for his convictions about what the Word of God teaches and standing up against uh, the Catholic Church, which would be a huge deal. And of course, Luther, he didn't want to be excommunicated. Uh, ultimately, what he wanted to do was reform the church, but when push came to shove and uh, when he had to decide who... Uh, who to uh, be faithful to, uh, he said, the word of God has bound my conscience, and I can't go against that. Now, I, I like to start with a little bit of history, and uh, for the rest of this message, I'm not going to talk about uh, any more history, but uh, I just like to talk about some history, just to give you a little bit of context in which some of these ideas come from. But today, what I want to do is mostly want to connect sola scriptura to the present, because I think the authority of scripture is going to be a challenge to many of us in the modern world. You see, for the average person in New York, uh, the issue is not usually going to be the authority of a religious institution, but the issue for us is going to be the authority that lies within the individual. Because that's, that's the dominant cultural narrative that we live in. In our day, it's the individual who has the ultimate authority to decide things like who they want God to be, things like how God should be approached, things like what is right and what is wrong. It's also the individual who has the authority to determine things like identity, and uh, that may seem normal to some people, but you have to realize it wasn't always the case in, in history. Uh, people didn't always look at it that way. And uh, I think what we're starting to see are stories like where parents want to give, uh, want their child to remain genderless so that the child can decide their gender for themselves. And uh, giving a, a person that much authority, even authority over their own gender, irrespective of their biological identity, is not something that you see in other cultures and other times in history. And uh, we have to ask our question, uh, ourselves the question, uh, why, why is this happening? What is the dominant story in our culture? And I think the dominant underlying narrative that makes these things plausible is the fact that we say it's the individual who ultimately has authority over these matters. And therefore, the authority of Scripture, it's going to pose a problem, I think, for many people in the modern world, just as it did for people in the Catholic world, but for very different reasons. Because in Luther's world, it's the Catholic Church as a human institution that felt threatened when Luther said Scripture had ultimate authority. But in our world, it's going to be the individual person who is going to feel threatened when you say Scripture has ultimate and final authority. Because again, when you challenge authority, when you threaten to take it away, that's when you begin to get in trouble. And I sense that as the world quickly changes, those who decide to follow the Bible will start to experience some of that trouble if you have not experienced it already. Uh, perhaps we're even already there. 
But if we can be encouraged by one thing, it's this. This problem is not actually all that new. People have always had a problem with the truthfulness and the authority of the word of God. It starts as early as in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden when the serpent says to Eve and questions God's word by saying this, did God really say? Did God really say that? And that's why as Paul writes the final letter probably before his death, he wants to give his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, some important concluding and final exhortations. And his exhortations mainly have to do with the word of God. He says to Timothy, stand firm in the word of God. Make sure you handle it correctly. Make sure you correct those who go against it. Make sure you guard your doctrine and your life. It's that important. There's this pastor uh, and he, he, who wrote, wrote many commentaries. His name is John Stott. And he wrote a commentary on this book. And he says that two of the most significant Greek words in this letter are the words sude, which is translated, but you. And we find it actually twice in this passage. The first time is in verse 10, and in our translation, it's translated as you, however, but more literally, it's but you. The second time is in verse 14, which is translated uh, as but for you. Uh, Same Greek words, though, but you. Paul is is making a contrast. Uh, He's saying, you know, those people in the previous passage, he says, those people, they love money, they're proud, they're arrogant, they're abusive, they're disobedient, they're ungrateful, heartless, and so forth and so forth. But you, Timothy, be different. Those people allow their various passions in their heart to, to lead them away from the truth of God's word. But you, Timothy, be different. Those people will deceive and be deceived. But you, Timothy, be different. Doesn't that really summarize what the life of a believer should be? They may do this, but you be different. And how do we be different? I think one of the ways is we hold on to the truth and the authority of the very word of God. They may believe this and they may follow this, but you follow the word of God. Now, as we look at this passage, what I I actually want to do is I want to start by looking at verses 16 and 17. And because 17 wasn't printed, let me me just read the two verses in its entirety again. It says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There, There is an important Greek word in there, and here it's translated as breathed out by God. And that word is theopneustos, which uh, actually has kind of like two words combined, theos and neustos, God and breath. And this is the only time this word, this particular word, is used in the entire New Testament. But it's an important word because it helps us understand the very nature of Scripture. What Paul says here is that Scripture is breathed out by God. And what does that mean? You know, when someone's breath comes out, like, right, when someone's breath comes out, the one thing that you could say with certainty is that the origin of that breath comes out of the person who is breathing, right? And therefore, what Paul is saying here is that the very source and the very origin of all scripture comes from God himself, who is breathing out the very words of scripture. That means this, that scripture is trustworthy. Why? Because God is trustworthy. And scripture comes from God. That scripture is reliable. Why? Because God is reliable. And scripture comes from the very breath of God. That scripture is good. Why? Because God is good. 
Scripture is also authoritative. Why? Because God is the one who is authoritative. In other words, how we approach and how we understand Scripture is closely related and tied into how we approach and understand God. Now, I know there are a lot of people that reject that, right? Even some Christians may reject that. Uh, A lot of books have been poured over this debate over Scripture and the nature of Scripture. People say things like the Bible is written by human authors, so how can you say it comes from God? Uh, There seem to be so many apparent uh, contradictions in the Bible, so how can you say it comes from God? And a lot has been written about these kind of questions, and if you'd like, if that's something you're really interested in talking about, we can talk about it after. Uh, but here, I don't, I don't want to give a uh, theological defense of Scripture, but rather I think what it, what's helpful to do is just think about the alternative. Think about the alternative. If the Bible is not from God, and if the Bible is not our final authority, then ultimately what has the power to, to change us? What has the power to rebuke us? What has the power to correct us and to challenge us? If the Bible is not authoritative, something has to have the authority to do that. And so what is that authority? You know, Tim Keller, he puts it like this. If the Bible isn't from God, then how will you ever let it contradict you? How will you ever let God contradict you? How will you you know that you're not just crafting and creating a kind of Christian faith that is not actually the faith of uh, the true and the living God, but it's more of a faith that reflects your personal desires and your personal wants? You see, if the Bible never contradicts us, then there's a good chance that the kind of Christianity we'll end up with will be a, a counterfeit form of Christianity because it's going to be something that reflects what we want Christianity to be rather than how Christianity is presented to us in Scripture. And uh, anything that uh, lacks an objectivity, something outside of us in terms of truth claims, uh, in spite of whether we like it or not, anything that does not lie outside of us ultimately doesn't have the power to change us. You know, I'm sure there are some of us who are really struggling with some of the Bible's teachings on certain issues, right? Uh, The values of the Bible and the values of our culture are increasingly getting further and further apart. But I want to encourage you, and I say that, you know, in a way, that's actually a good sign, and it's a good thing because it means you're not trying to create a counterfeit form of Christianity that reflects your desires, but uh, you're really trying to wrestle with what God is saying here and how to make sense of it in the world that you understand and in the world that you live in. You're not trying to make God fit into a particular image of what you want him to be, but you're wrestling with the real, true, and living God who reveals himself through scriptures in a certain way. And that's a good thing, to wrestle with these things. But isn't that what happens in any kind of real, personal, and genuine relationship? I usually use this illustration when I talk about scripture, but a couple years ago, there was this movie that came out with Joaquin Phoenix called She. Uh, I don't know if it's a widely viewed movie, but I think it's like on Netflix, or you can stream it now if you want to watch it. But basically, it's about a man uh, who falls in love with an operating system voiced by Scarlett Johansson. And uh, what makes this kind of relationship so attractive to him uh, is that, you know, it's it's an operating system. It's software. It's a computer and in many ways, it seems like it's the perfect mate for him. It does what he wants. It conforms to his personality, his interests, his desires. And while that may seem attractive on the surface, the underlying problem that I think the movie is trying to illustrate is this, that it is not a real relationship. And I think that's what, the, again, the movie is trying to, to say. You see, one of the signs of a genuine relationship is, is uh, 
is that there is a person on the other side, and that person on the other side will occasionally contradict us and cross our will. And we might not always like that, but at the very least, it means that the relationship is something that is very personal and very real. And if all scripture is breathed out by God, then it means that all scripture is from God. And if all scripture is from God, then it means that it is always going to contradict us at some point. But that's exactly why Paul is saying scripture is profitable, right? It's profitable not only for teaching, but also for reproof. It's profitable not only for training in righteousness, but also for correction. And when scripture contradicts us, it's actually good for us because it demonstrates that it has the power to transform us. But you know, scripture also plays a key role in salvation, and we see it in verse 15 where Paul says to Timothy, uh, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy was taught the sacred writings. He was taught scripture since he was a child. Um, he was taught from his mother. I kind of wonder, why wasn't he taught by his father? Um, not many things have changed in our world, perhaps. Challenge the men. Um, be spiritual leaders and fathers. But anyway, he tells Timothy to remember the sacred writings because it makes him wise for salvation. Now try to follow me here. What does scripture have the power to do for us? Because it is the very breath of God, it has the power to give us life and salvation. And so think about this. Every time we open up our Bibles, every time we read our Bibles, every time we meditate on the very scripture, it has the power to be the very breath of God to us. Think about that. Now, what does that mean? Whenever we look at the Bible, God's breath, it's always linked to life. Always linked to life. In Genesis chapter 2, after God forms man out of the dust from the ground, what does he do? He breathes into his nostrils the very breath of life, and the man becomes a living creature, breath and life. You know, when we were in uh, Europe and uh, we went to Bulgaria, a few of us, we were uh, on this prayer march. When we went to Bulgaria, we prayed in one of the, the famous Eastern Orthodox churches there. But before we entered in the church to pray, there was a passage that was read from Ezekiel 37, which just gives us the imagery of dry bones. And uh, basically, this imagery of dry bones is meant to portray Israel in its lifelessness away from God. And so what God tells Ezekiel to do, he says this, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Breath, life linked together. You see how God works and how he gives life. He breathes life into Adam. He promises to breathe life into these dry bones so that they may live again. And as we come to the New Testament, God breathes out life into us through his very word. You see, the Bible, it's not like any other book because it's not simply words on a piece of paper, but it is the very breath of life that gives us life and salvation. But do you even know why God can breathe life into us through his word. Do you know why we can have things like salvation? It's because of this. Jesus, the very incarnate word, the one who came and 
dwelled among us, who tabernacled among us, he breathed his last breath when he died on the cross. Isn't that what we read at the end of the Gospels? After hours of hanging upon the cross, what do the Gospel writers tell us? Jesus, he cries out in this really loud voice, and after that cry, they tell us, Jesus breathed his last breath. It's another way of saying he died. Life was taken out of him. On the cross, life and breath was taken out of Jesus, that death overcame him. The Son of God paid the dues for our sins with his very final breath. And it's only because Jesus lost his last breath that God is able to breathe life into us with life and salvation. Now, how does he do it? Well, a couple answers, but let me give you one. At the end of the Gospel of John, John 20, 22, uh, Jesus says something really interesting. Uh, <clears throat> or at least I, I should say the Gospel of John says something interesting. Uh, it says Jesus breathed on his disciples. Right? Very interesting. Jesus breathed on his disciples and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, in the Hebrew and then in the Greek, uh, the word for spirit and breath, they're actually the same word. Uh, in Hebrew, it's ruach, and in Greek, it's pneuma. You know, after Jesus ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit, what it does is it descends and it fulfills the prophecy given to Ezekiel as dry bones are brought to life through the very breath of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit breathes new life into people and ultimately creates the church, and that's what we see in the book of Acts. People begin to repent and get baptized and receive life and salvation and begin to follow Christ. And that same Spirit would breathe out the very words of Scripture through his word. So that Spirit and word working together, God would breathe new life into all of us here today. The very breath of God. But, you know, there's something else I think that we also have to consider, and it's this. You know, although we receive life and salvation through God's word and spirit, uh, there is something else that we receive and we should also expect, and it's this, persecution. That's what Paul says in verse 12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, why, why is that? And just think with me for a minute. You know, on a surface level, we can say that God's word is always going to offend somebody or some kind of culture, uh, some aspect of belief in a culture. It, it always does that. You know, in our culture, people tend to be offended by things like God's judgment for sin. And uh, in our culture, we find that very offensive. But, you know, in other cultures, people actually find the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God to be offensive, uh, especially if you're somebody who's been oppressed and part of a culture uh, where people were persecuted and what you want is justice. And so to say that God offers forgiveness to those oppressors, that's very offensive. Our culture will say things like the Bible's narrative of sex is offensive because it's way too conservative. It's way too backwards. You know, a few of us just got back from Turkey, uh, which is a country that is filled with Muslims. You know, a Muslim would read the Bible, and you know what a Muslim would say about the Bible's narrative of sex? Say it's way too liberal, right? It's way, <laughs> way too open. People will always have an issue with God's word. But, you know, on a spiritual level, it really makes sense that people will always have an issue with God's word and the truth of God's word. Why? Because Satan is a deceiver, and his ways have not really changed. In the Garden of Eden, his method of temptation was to challenge 
the truth and the authority of God's word by saying this. Did God really say that? And there's an underlying subtext there in which Satan is actually scoffing at God. He's really saying this. If that is really what God said, are you sure God is good? If that is really what God said, are you sure he wants the best for you? If that is really what God said, are you sure that the God that you worship is a, is a reasonable God and a loving God? That, that is the subtext of that question. And if we take the Bible seriously, then we should probably expect more of the same. Satan is going to make us feel like God isn't good or that God isn't reasonable when it comes to his word. When we confront something that falls outside of our cultural paradigm, we're going to start to hear people say, are you serious? Is that, is that really what you believe? Is that really what the Bible says? You know, if so, how can your God be good? If you believe that, you're going to be on the wrong side of history. If you believe that, you're a fool. Isn't that what we're going to hear all the time? And we should expect to hear that. You know, yesterday, I was working in a coffee shop. Uh, you know, we got back Thursday night, and I thought I would have time to uh, work on this message on the trip, but it was jam-packed, so I had, like, no time. Uh, and I thought I would be able to work on it on the airplane, but then uh, I got sick and I felt really nauseous, so I didn't work on the airplane. So yesterday, I was just working on it all day. And uh, I was in a coffee shop, and someone asked me if they could use my power cable for their laptop because I guess they needed to charge a laptop. And I said, sure. And so this person sat next to me to charge his computer. And uh, he's like, you know, what are you working on? And I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church, so I'm working on my sermon. And that started to spark his interest. And he, he really wanted to talk to me about politics, right? And I, I don't really enjoy talking about politics, but he's like, okay, so if you're a Christian, you know, what do you think about politics? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, like, what do you think about Trump? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's what you mean. Okay. So we talked a little bit about it. But, you know, we also talked a little bit about religion, and he, he said he grew up in a conservative Jewish home. But he's not really devout. He doesn't really follow it today. Uh, he said he appreciates some of the things that he learned growing up from the Old Testament, but he couldn't really accept it all because he just simply didn't like a lot of the things that it taught and a lot of the things that it said. And, uh, you know, it was very ironic because I was writing a sermon on this very topic, right? And, uh, you know, he kept wanting to talk politics, so the conversation mostly veered there. But, you know, I imagine if the conversation uh, continued down uh, the path of faith, and if I said to him, you know, uh, I should tell you, I, I believe, uh, by the way, I had a book on next to me, Sola Scriptura, right, the authority of God's word. I don't know if you saw that. But <clears throat> uh, if I said, you know, hey, you should know, I believe everything in the Bible. <laughs> uh, I believe the Bible is God's word, and I believe I can't choose, and I have to accept it all, even the parts that I don't like, and even the parts I may disagree with. I have to accept it all. I think he would probably look at me as being some kind of religious nut, or maybe even a bigot. You know, I think in the course of that conversation, I actually probably said some things that he didn't like, and I did get the sense that he wanted to stop talking to me, and kind of move on from me, but he was borrowing my power cable, so I think he had to continue to be nice to me, but, uh, I, you know, I think the point is this. It's going to be hard for uh, many of us to stand firm in the word of God. But we're not unique in that. It's, it's hard for everybody because Satan wants us to question the truth of God's word. It was hard for Timothy, but he had to do it, and that's Paul's exhortation. It was hard for Martin Luther for very different reasons, but he had to do it. It will be hard for us as well. It will be. 
but we have to do it because Scripture is God's very breath and it breathes life and salvation into us. I know some of us may doubt the power of God's word because it is something that's becoming increasingly popular to espouse. But I want to remind you, God's word is still powerful and it still gives life. Maybe it doesn't feel like it here in New York, but if you hear some of the testimonies and some of the conversion stories in other parts of the world, you are reminded that God's word is powerful. You hear conversion stories in places like Iran. Remarkable. People who are Muslims, some of them were even imams, they got a hold of the New Testament and they begin to read it. And simply by reading the New Testament, their heart changed and they became believers. Even without a missionary there. That's amazing, right? We just visited Turkey. We heard similar stories. Uh, One of the places we visited their ministry, they just send out Bibles, and people who are interested in Bibles uh, contact them through, like, social media, and then they they mail out these Bibles. And some of them, they read these Bibles, and they become believers, and they become convicted of the truth of God's word and the love of Christ. God's word is powerful, friends, even though it may not seem like it here in New York. I can even personally testify to it. You know, in high school... Uh, Some of my friends, uh, I didn't have, like, any Christian friends uh, until college. And I wasn't really a believer until uh, my senior year in high school. And I would talk to my friends, and most of them were atheists, and we would actually debate about God and the existence of God. And for whatever reason, I took the side that I think God exists, and they would try to convince me God doesn't exist. And after a while of debating that, I was kind of like, you know, if I believe that God exists, I actually have no idea who he is. And I have no idea what I believe about him. So what I decided to do is I I started to just read the Bible on my own. And over the course of a year, as I read the Bible, um, in retrospect, God slowly began to change my heart. And in reading the Bible, I I came not only to understand the gospel, of course with the help of uh, other people and community, but I really came to believe in it. And God's word, it had the power to change my heart just simply by reading it as a senior in high school. And when I got to college, God put this insatiable desire in my heart to read it more and more, and I had this hunger that it felt like it couldn't be satisfied. And so, you know, I was sharing with uh, some of the college students that went on this past trip, and I was just sharing, uh, you know, it was like the supernatural hunger that God put in me. And when I was in college, I would go to the library, and instead of, like, studying for my classes, I would right, check out some Bible commentaries and just read the Bible and just try to understand what, what the Bible was saying. Now, if you knew me before, you would know I never read, right? I hated reading before that. But because God put this hunger in my heart for his word, because he literally changed my life and changed my heart through his word, he gave me that hunger. Scripture, it is God's breathed out word to us, and it will contradict us, it will correct us, it will rebuke us, A lot of the things that we read in it, we may not agree with and we may not like. It may even invite persecution upon us. But if we stand firm in it, it will give us life and salvation. As God reveals himself to us, as he reveals his grace to us, as he reveals to us the incarnate word to us, 
the incarnate word who died upon a cross for our sin, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, the very thing that we confess in the Apostles' Creed. God's word has the power to fill us and breathe new life into us. And so let's treasure it. Homework assignment, should you want to uh, do it. Read Psalm 119. Uh, compare it with our own uh, attitude towards God's word. And if it doesn't match up, just say a simple prayer. God, help me to approach your word like the psalmist in Psalm 119. And if together we can do that, we will be a church filled with great life. Let's pray together.